15 minutes could save you more than just money on car insurance. This is Industry Focus. Welcome to the financials edition of Industry Focus. I'm Christine Hargis. And today we're going to find out from the Fool's senior banking expert, John Maxfield, how to dig into a bank stock the easy way in 15 minutes or less. So, John has spent countless hours analyzing banks, and from this wealth of experience, he's been able to distill bank analysis down to just three key metrics that you can use to find out if a bank you're looking at is a good investment. And if you're thinking that this is too good to be true, consider the industry that we're talking about here. All banks really do, at their core, is borrow money at one interest rate and lend it out at a higher one, and they pocket the spread. So, because banks share such similar business models, the beauty of the industry is that once you can analyze one bank stock, you're pretty much set to analyze them all and make meaningful comparisons, too, to help you choose the best of the best for your investment money. So, without further ado, let's dig in. John, from what I understand, the first piece to this puzzle has to do with protecting yourselves from losses when things take a turn for the worst. So, how can investors safeguard against losing all of their investment or close to it in uh, banking panics? So the, the important thing to, to keep in mind whenever you're investing in banks is that, um, to your point about banking panics, if you go back and you look at the history of banking, the banking industry, more than probably any other industry, um, is really susceptible to these infrequent, um, intermittent panics that cause a whole bunch of them to fail, or if they don't fail, to egregiously dilute their shareholders. And so you want to, when, you, when you're picking a bank stock, the very first thing you want to do is just your temperature check to make sure that the bank you're looking at is not susceptible to that. And the, and the easiest way to do that is just to look at its return on equity, its annual return on equity over the past, I don't know, say 10 years, pick out the lowest return on equity, um, the lowest annual return on equity. If that number is negative, it means that the bank took relatively large losses in the financial crisis. If it took large losses in the financial crisis, it means that it probably um, in some way either underwrites uh, bad loans or takes bad assets onto its balance sheet, and you, and you definitely want to avoid that. So how do you go about calculating that number? So the return on equity, there's a couple of different approaches you can take to this. First, return on equity, because it's such a common metric, you can just go into a bank's um, regulatory filings, either 10Q, which is their quarterly regulatory filing, or their 10K, which is their annual regulatory filing. And you can find all this stuff on the SEC's Edgar, um, on the SEC's website, particularly the Edgar database. Um, so you can go in there and just look at their, their return on equity. Or if you wanted to calculate it yourself, what you do is you just take their annual net income over any given year and, and divide that by the, uh, the amount of shareholders' equity. And that'll give you how much they're returning uh, based upon the capital that's invested in the company. Great. And what are we looking to see here? What's considered, in the long run, kind of solid? So over the long run, as a general rule, what what you want is you want a return on equity in excess of 10%. I say that because in the bank industry, it's generally assumed that common capital costs roughly 10% of your equity. So if you want to be moving in the positive directions in, in, in terms of your earnings relative to the actual expense of the money that's invested, and, and by say, when I say the expense of the money invested, I mean the opportunity of cost, cost associated with investing in a bank relative to investing in bonds or any, any other type of investment. 
you want to be above 10%. And if you're a really good bank, a U.S. Bank Corps, Wells Fargo, an M&T Bank, a New York Community Bank Corps, you're going to be up in the 15% range. And yet in this 15-minute analysis, what you would recommend is looking for that worst year? That's exactly right. So that's for the first step. So that's just, that is just making sure that you're not going to get yourself into a situation um, where in the next you know, downturn or financial panic or whatever it is, you're not going to regret the decision of investing in that particular bank. Right. And even if you have been experiencing pretty good returns during normal times, all of a sudden, economy takes a turn for the worst and you see your your uh, entire investment getting washed away. So, right. That's exactly right. And, and even more to that point, Christine, is that when the economy is going really, really well, uh, the poorly run banks actually have a tendency to generate really high returns on equity because they're underwriting a ton of loans, many of which are eventually going to turn, will eventually go into default when, they talk, when the economy turns against the bank. But just by looking at, you know, your, the top line return on equity, how, you know, how high it is over a given time period, isn't going to tell you as much as looking at the bottom line. Sounds good. So there's step one, identifying the lowest annual return on equity since 2008. So the next step in your 15-minute analysis is taking a look at how disciplined the bank is and how much of its revenue gets washed away by expenses. John, how do we get a feel for this? So there is a metric in the banking world. It's called the efficiency ratio. And what the efficiency ratio does is it, it, it just tells you the percent of a bank's net revenue that's consumed by operating expenses. And you're going to want to see that figure be in the 60% range. Uh, ideally, quite frankly, with a really good bank, you're going to want to be at see it below 60%. But if you have a bank that has an efficiency ratio that's above 60%, so let's say a bank's efficiency ratio is 75%, that means that only 25% of its revenue is left over to pay taxes, uh, distribute, you know, to, to take care of dividends to preferred shareholders, and also to take care of low loss provisions. So that's going to leave very little income left over to actually be, uh, to accrue to the actual common stock shareholders. So you want to see that, that efficiency ratio relatively low in order for a bank to be highly profitable. And if a bank is highly profitable, then it's going to compound its earnings at a, at a, at a very rapid rate. Um, and assuming that they're, they are good about their risk management, it'll do so at, over a long period of time. And it seems like this is all kind of tied together by the concept of discipline. That's exactly right. So which banks have the best efficiency ratios? So, it, you know, your general banks have great efficiency ratios. I've already mentioned them, Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank Corps. U.S. Bank Corps is constantly, or is pretty consistently in the mid-50% range, 55% a little, and a little bit higher. It's, it's trended a little higher over the last few years just because we have higher regulatory compliance costs as a result of the increased regulations since the financial crisis. But you also have a bank like New York Community Bank Corps, which the its efficiency ratio is often in the 40% range, between 40 and 50%. But that's just because of it, it's, it's got kind of a unique business model. But those are the banks that are really disciplined, not only at expenses, but and this is something we've talked about in the past, but also writing good loans. And, and there is a connection there because it takes discipline to do both. Right. And so you get that positive feedback loop where banks with lower ratios are already more profitable, so they have less incentive to make these kind of questionable loans just to stretch out their yield. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And if there is one thing, Christine, that bank investors should keep in mind, it is that relationship between a bank's efficiency ratio and its tendency to underwrite either good or bad loans. 
All right, so that's a very important step two then, your efficiency ratio. So step three is all about profitability. John, what is our last metric to look at? So the last thing you're going to want to look at, so you know, after we've gone through and, and we've temperature checked the bank to make sure that it has probably a good chance of making it through the next crisis in good shape, not even uh, thriving during the next crisis, and then making sure that just as a general rule, it's a, it's a relatively highly profitable bank because its expenses take up a relatively small proportion of its uh, net revenue, then you're going to want to swing in and, and to see how it's doing on the sales side. And to, to determine that, you're going to want to look at its top-line revenue. Um, and just, you know, there's a number of ways that, that you can look at it, but how I like to look at it is you want to see a top-line revenue figure that's somewhere in the range of 4.5% or greater relative to its assets. So why 4.5%? Well, if you go through the math, you know, so earlier I said that you know a bank is going to want to earn, let's say, a 10% return on equity just in order to cover its cost of capital. So if, you, if we can start with there and then kind of work our way backwards. So because banks are leveraged by a factor of 10 to 1, that means you're going to want to earn about 1% on your assets. So then if you take, you take into consideration that you want to get your net income to be about 1% of your assets, and then you have to start backing out your expenses, which let's say, you know, there's 60% of your revenue is consumed by your expenses, so that's going to increase how much revenue you're going to need relative to your assets. And then you got to take into consideration taxes and loan loss provisions and then payouts to your preferred shareholders. And just once you take all those things into consideration, just the math works out that you need 4.5% or higher in order to generate at least a 10% return on equity. So that makes sense that you're starting with the 10%, you're considering a leverage factor 10 to 1, that gives you your 1%, and then you take your efficiency ratio and say that because you do have all these costs, you want to see revenue up there in the 4, or 4.5 or greater range. But how do you get that 10% to start with? So the 10% is, it, you know, the, the, the terminology is used in the bank industry that your 10% is your cost of capital. And what they mean is that even though when you think of equity capital is, you know, when you look at a bank's income statement, equity capital doesn't actually have an expense, right? It's not like you're paying interest on it. However, the way the banks look at it is they, they kind of impute the cost of capital. They say, look, we have to earn a certain amount of money in order to attract investors to invest in our stock rel- rather than, say, bonds, other stocks from other industries and that type of stuff. And what, and what kind of the industry has settled on at that return on capital or that return on equity being is right around 10% um, to where over the long run, the bank industry at that rate can sufficiently attract the equity that it needs in order to, um, to do what it does. Okay, so it's kind of like a theoretical interest to shareholders just so that people don't sell all their shares and cause the price itself to drop? That's exactly right. It, it, it's, it, it, it's an imputed cost of capital. So it's not like actually a cost of capital. It's just imputed. Okay, great. So there we have our our three steps. The one thing that's kind of left on my mind, though, that we haven't really touched on within those those three steps, what about valuation? How do you know that even if a a bank passes the test on these three metrics, you're not paying too much? So that's a great question. Valuation is is tricky, you know, when it comes to any type of stock, and and, and banks are no exception. The problem is that, right, if you're going to have, if you have a bank that has great credit discipline, great expense management discipline, expense management discipline, 
and it also has good revenue generating abilities. It's going to trade at a high valuation relative to its book value. So in the bank industry, the saying is you want to buy at half a book and sell it half a book value and sell it two times the book value. But the reality is that you, if you're going to invest in banks, you only want to invest in ones that are stable and that you can trust to make it through the next crisis. And those are good banks. And those, I mean, it's unheard of when a bank like U.S. Bank or Wells Fargo is going to trade at half a book value. So if you're going to buy bank stocks, you're going to have to pay up in your valuation. But the one positive thing about that is that good banks, if you look at, say, a U.S. bank where the trades for about two times book value, um, if you look at a chart of its valuation over years and decades, it's always traded at a relatively high valuation. So it kind of takes care of itself. It's not like you're buying at two times book value, then it's going to fall down to one times book value. Good banks traditionally stay right around you know, that, that two times book value rate. So you, you, you just have to, you know, suck it up, go with it, buy the good bank at a high valuation, and just assume that's going to compound at a high rate, which it should do, and particularly relative to um, kind of their, their less, uh, or their, their less well-managed peers. It's a very foolish answer, John, since, of course, we do advocate at The Motley Fool buying and holding for the long run. So with that, <laughs> and, that's, and that's the thing. The, the one thing that we know is that if you hold stocks, good companies for a very long time, even if you overpay for a little bit, uh, a little bit, you're still going to get generate long, great returns. And that's why Warren Buffett, one of his famous things is, it's better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. That's an awesome way to close out the episode. Thanks, everyone, for giving us your 15 minutes today. And John, thanks so much for sharing your awesome framework. Of course, picking out a bank that you can really stand behind buying shares in will likely take you more than 15 minutes. But I know I was surprised to hear just how much I could learn about a prospective bank stock in just these three easy steps. So what banks are you guys going to try it out on? What's on your mind? Let us know at industryfocusatfull.com. We love hearing from you guys, and we're happy to answer whatever questions you might have for us. And until next time, have a great week. Fool on. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.